Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast hosted by the KPMG IRW specialists within Washington National Tax to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a short 10-minute segment. These segments aren't intended to be a comprehensive discussion of law, but rather are intended to be a quick knowledge update or a refresher that you can fit in over a break. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee, fit in an afternoon stretch, or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm your host, Danielle Nishida. My guest today is Jigna Patel, a tax director who has recently joined our practice from the KPMG Cayman Islands firm. I thought it would be nice to hear from Jigna today, as our topic is the new Cayman Islands CRS compliance form that's due next month, and Jigna has substantial experience with Cayman Islands reporting. This new CRS compliance form is a new reporting requirement that's going into effect this year in the Cayman Islands. The Cayman Islands has previously planned to roll out the CRS compliance form last year, but due to portal update issues, it ended up delaying the deadline for completion of the 2019 form until September of this year. As a result, the CRS compliance forms for both the 2019 and 2020 calendar years are now due on September 15th. So while it was great news last year that we got the full year delay, the downside now is that financial institutions are going to be completing this form for the first time and are going to have the added burden of compiling and submitting two years worth of data all at once. Therefore, this is a really big deadline coming up in the Cayman Islands. To provide a brief explanation of the purpose of the form, the CRS compliance form functions as a summary document of a financial institution's compliance with the common reporting standard. Therefore, the financial institution will be providing aggregate data regarding its accounts and making certifications regarding its compliance. What is particularly noteworthy is that unlike a form like the 1042, which merely provides a summary of all the forms 1042S reported during the year, the CRS compliance form not only collects summary data of the accounts reported, but also requires summary data regarding accounts that are not reported. Therefore, the information required by the form may include information that a financial institution does not necessarily have in a readily accessible format. For example, a financial institution should know why an account was not reportable, but since they weren't required to report that previously, they may not have stored that in an electronic system. And so this may require some digging to get the proper information needed to complete the form. For that reason, it's really important that financial institutions that are required to complete the form begin gathering the necessary information immediately if they have not already started. So as a starting point, Jigna, can you take us through which Cayman Islands financial institutions are required to file this form? Yes. So if you have a Cayman financial institution, for example, a reporting financial institution registered on the DITC portal, that you had recently completed reporting for, for FY19 and 20 by July 31st, and you would need to complete this form for each one of those FIs. That includes trustee documented trusts and private investment companies. The only exception is investment managers and advisors that have registered um, as such on the portal already. So even if an FI had no reporting to complete and all they had to do was file a nil return for CRS purposes, they're going to be required to file the CRS compliance form? That's correct, Danielle. So as you previously noted, the compliance form is a summary of reportable accounts and non-reportable accounts. So this would include the total number of account holders and the value of their accounts, irrespective of if their account values meet the minimum reporting threshold or if they're in reportable jurisdictions. So if an FI files a nil CRS return by the annual July 31st deadline, they're still going to be obligated to include general information. Okay, thanks, Jigna. So can you walk us through the form and elaborate on what specific information must be provided? So the form is broken down into five sections. 
parts of the form are going to be pre-populated, but you'll need to have some of the information on hand to complete certain sections. For example, if your entity is registered with the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority, or SEMA as we call it, then you would need to have that number handy. And if you're registered with SEMA, you can skip the entire Section 3, which encompasses AML KYC reporting. If you're not registered with SEMA, you'll need to select the appropriate entity type, for example, structured finance vehicles or securitized SPVs. There's an option for other under which you would write out trust if that's your type of vehicle. But the meat of the form is really section two with respect to the total accounts and value of the FI, along with a summary of reportable versus non-reportable accounts at year end. And since you mentioned the non-reportable accounts, I think that's going to be the most difficult part of this form. Um, can you talk a little more in depth about the requirements with respect to non-reportable accounts? Yeah, that's a great point. This really is one of the more difficult portions of the form. So the FI will be required to provide the reasons the accounts are not reportable and the total number of accounts and value of the accounts for each exemption category. So maybe I'll go through a couple of examples. One would be if you have joint accounts that have two account holders, one resident in the Cayman Islands and one resident in the U.S. So neither of these would be reportable person jurisdictions under the CRS. The response to this question in the compliance form should be both, meaning it would not be reportable for both reasons, U.S. and non-U.S. Similar to that example, if you have an account holder and a controlling person in, respectively, the Cayman Islands and the U.S., then the answer to this question in the form would also be, quote-unquote, both, as, again, they are not reportable jurisdictions under the common reporting standard. So slight variance on a non-reportable account would be a pre-existing entity account that's below the threshold for reporting. While the account's not reportable, the value of these accounts still should be included in question 2.1 for the total value of the FI's financial accounts. Lastly, and very important, there is an option to note that the number or value of the non-reportable accounts, you can mark it as unknown, but I wouldn't say that would be recommended as this would likely trigger a flag to the authority and the FI would be subject to further review. So I noticed one thing about the form that is a little confusing. The form requires you to report in different categories the reason accounts are non-reportable. And there's a special section for the account holder not being a reportable category. So like a financial institution is not a reportable category. But there's a second separate section for an account holder that is from a non-reportable jurisdiction. So for example, if they're from the United States, they're not in a reportable jurisdiction and they wouldn't need to be reported. What is not 100% clear is how the account should get reported if the account holder is both a financial institution and not reportable for that reason, but also from the United States. If you just read the form and the flow and the directions on the form, it seems to indicate that you would typically defer to the jurisdiction first. Therefore, if an account is not reportable for two reasons, you would report it as a non-reportable jurisdiction and leave it out of the other section. And in fact, the header to the other section indicates accounts that are not reportable accounts but are from reportable jurisdictions. And so that seemed pretty clear until the Cayman Islands Authority came out with an FAQ. And in the FAQ, they're specifically talking about one section, specifically section 2.5, which is talking about the jurisdictions and indicating that where you're from multiple jurisdictions that are non-reportable, you're going to break that down and somewhat double reported in both categories. But in that section, they also just state a general principle that if an account's reportable for more than one reason, it gets reported under each reason. And it's hard to determine whether they intended that very broad principle to apply only to Section 2.5, which relates to the jurisdictional issues, or whether it applies generally, such that they're actually saying if you have two reasons an account's not reportable, 
i.e. it's an FI and it's from the United States, that you should be double counting that account when you do your totals. We think the better answer is that it shouldn't be double reported, but because it's not clear, double reporting may be the safer answer. And so we just wanted to point out that there is that discrepancy right now between the way the FAQ is phrased and the way the form is phrased. And I would say, practically speaking, a lot of financial institutions probably did not record multiple reasons for why an account is not reportable. So for example, if you knew an account holder was from a financial institution, you may not have done an in-depth search into all of their indicia because it no longer was relevant and the due diligence rules did not require you to do that. So practically speaking, you may not have multiple reasons stored for why the account's not reportable. And in that case, you're probably just from a practical perspective gonna defer to the reason that you have recorded. So this issue of double reporting may somewhat be a moot point because in a lot of cases, there's only going to be one reason stored in your system. But that is somewhat of a pending issue. And we're hoping that the Cayman Islands Authority will come up with some guidance on this in the future. Thanks, Danielle. That's definitely going to be a scenario to pay attention to and determine if a conservative approach would be the most practical for the FIs on a case-by-case basis until we hear more from the authority. So maybe to wrap up the content of the rest of the form, Section 4 mainly covers the administrative functions of the CRS due diligence, excluding undocumented accounts. And Section 5 is the signing or declaration of the form. So Section 5 to me is probably one of the most important sections that FIs might look over. The section acknowledges that the FI maintains written policies and procedures and complies with those policies and procedures as regulated by the Cayman Tax Authority. A few jurisdictions last year began to send out notices to FIs to request their policies and procedures, and I would expect Cayman to follow suit this year as they are expected to administer penalties on those FIs that fail to file the compliance form, annual reporting, and a written set of policies and procedures. And we talked about this on a prior podcast, but I want to make this point again. This written policies and procedures requirement is a really big deal. There's a lot of financial institutions, such as banks and custodians, that have those written policies and procedures in place because that's part of their normal course of how they do things. But in the alternative investment space, so for example, trusts and funds, a lot of them will not automatically have written policies and procedures. And if you don't have those in place now, there's only a month remaining to prepare those so you can make that certification. So that is a really big requirement to pay attention to. So, Jigna, since you raised the issue of penalties, I think it's important that we talk about that because we've not really seen the Cayman Islands impose penalties previously for things like late returns, even though their guidance does provide for penalties. What are we expecting to happen if the CRS compliance form is submitted after September 15th? Per FAQs released by the DITC in Cayman, an FI would be in breach of Part 2 of the CRS regulations if it fails to submit the CRS compliance form by the deadline and an administrative penalty will automatically be issued by the authority. Keep in mind that in the past, we haven't seen Cayman impose any penalties. Now that Cayman's back on the gray list, we expect penalties to start being imposed as the authority is drafted and is adhering to stricter measures. The current regulations note amounts that can be up to 50,000 CI, that's the equivalent of about 61,000 US dollars per FI. While we would expect that significant of an amount to be reversed for those FIs that purposefully circumvent the CRS Act, we would not expect a non-willful missed or late filing to be subject to such egregious amounts. Regardless, it's best for all FIs to stick to the deadlines imposed and mitigate any potential penalties. And Jigna, has the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority at all signaled the amount of the fines that they intend to impose when they do impose administrative penalties? They have not yet. 
my understanding is that they are working on these amounts. So we should expect to see them potentially over the next couple of months. Okay. And that's a really disconcerting thing from the perspective of an FI who has a minor error because you don't know that it's only going to be $100 or whether it's going to be $1,000. All you know is that it's somewhere in the realm of under 50000 And that's a huge number on a per FI basis. Yeah. And honestly, I would see the 50000 again, as more willfully trying to circumvent the common reporting standard. I would say when we think about a U.S. Form 5471, a missed filing is 10000 U.S. dollars. So I couldn't imagine it being any more than that. But again, we don't know the exact amounts at this time. And this is a little off topic for the CRS compliance form, but since we're talking about penalties, I know it's an issue of concern for many financial institutions that recently missed a 731 filing deadline for 2020. Would we expect these similar penalties to be imposed this year for those financial institutions? Yeah, generally, this should be expected unless there are any mitigating circumstances. For example, we saw some trusts that were not migrated over to the new portal. And what happened was these trusts, they would reach out to DITC and they weren't able to access their FI. This was due to a software glitch. Uh, It was not due to the trust's own actions. So the DITC had confirmed to these trusts, at least the ones that reached out and obtained uh, email documentation, that they would not be administered any penalties for the FY19 or FY20 reporting year. Okay, but when the actions are due to an error caused by the FI, we're now expecting penalties to be imposed. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And I think the last thing we should discuss is how does a financial institution go about submitting the forms? So the compliance form operates from the same portal as a CRS annual return. Only the PPOC or principal point of contact and assigned secondary users may submit the form. As of the second week of August, this hasn't been updated and only the smart form is available for the compliance form. This essentially is manual entry of each FI's compliance form. While there is a bulk upload template available on the DITC site, unfortunately, the portal is not yet set up to utilize the bulk upload option, but it's expected to be available, quote unquote, sometime in 2021 as per the DITC FAQ. Therefore, we don't know if it will be available before or after the deadline. And just to clarify, these CRS compliance forms are on an FI by FI basis, right? So if you are a fund manager who manages a thousand different funds in the Cayman Islands, you are going to be submitting a thousand different forms. Is that correct, Jigna? Yep, that's correct. So as of now, that's going to be a very painful thousand forms to submit, but hopefully the bulk upload option becomes available before the deadline. Thanks, Jigna. That concludes this episode of IRW Coffee Break. Please don't forget to submit your comments or suggestions using the podcast feedback button on the webcast page. And we hope you can join us again soon.